I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Psalms. Today we're going to be looking at Psalm 127. And as you open your Bibles to Psalm 127, you're going to notice two things about the title of this psalm. The title says, A Song of Ascents of Solomon. So first, this psalm is a song of ascents. Actually, Psalms 120 to 134 in our Bibles are titled A Song of Ascents. And these were psalms traditionally sung by pilgrims on the way to Jerusalem during one of the three required annual Jewish uh, festivals. So as the pilgrims were approaching Jerusalem to worship God in the temple, they would sing these psalms. Second, the authorship of this psalm is attributed to Solomon, the son of David, the third king of Israel. Actually, out of the 150 psalms in the Psalter, two psalms are attributed to Solomon, this one and the other one being Psalm 72. Now, the sermon title for this psalm is Living Under Divine Providence. Living Under Divine Providence. Providence. This title is actually taken from the theologian, from the professor of Old Testament and Bible commentator Alan Ross's commentary on the book of Psalms, Living Under Divine Providence. And this title is very fitting because this psalm, as we will, as we will see, it addresses. This psalm, it talks about, it singles out some important aspects of our lives some spheres of our lives that we highly value. Things like a house, shelter, protection, safety, sleep, family. Now, British Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner, he says, one of the most telling features of this short poem is that it singles out three of our most universal preoccupations, building, security, and raising a family, and makes us ask what they all amount to, and to whom do we owe them? Building, security, raising a family. And unless the Lord, unless the Almighty is involved in these areas, as we will see, we are building, we are watching, we are laboring in vain. Unless the Lord now, commentator, reform commentator, and Pastor James Boyce, he noticed, a Latin motto says, Nisi Dominus Frusta. It comes from the first words of the psalm and means, without the Lord, frustration. Without the Lord, frustration. It is the motto of the city of Edinburgh, Scotland, appearing on its crest and is affixed to the city's official documents. It could be attached to the lives of many who are trying to live their lives without the Almighty. Unless the Lord, without the Lord, apart from the Lord, frustration. Now, this psalm tells us, as we see, that the overall emphasis of this psalm is on living the life of faith under the providence of God. Living the life of faith in complete dependence upon the Lord, complete trust in the Lord, complete confidence that the Lord will provide. And our trust, our confidence is that the Lord will not only provide 
for our individual lives, but the Lord is going to provide for our family life, for our work life, and the life of the church. So hear now God's holy, inerrant word, Psalm 127, beginning with the title. A song of ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. This is the word of the Lord. May he imprint these truths upon our hearts. So we're actually going to be looking at the psalm under five propositions that are actually taken right from the psalm itself. And the first proposition is that unless the Lord builds the house, we are building in vain. The second one is that unless the Lord watches the city, we are watching in vain. Third one is unless the Lord blesses the work, we are toiling in vain. Fourth one, unless the Lord gives sleep, no sleep is restful. And the last one is unless the Lord builds the family. Unless the Lord builds the family means that we cannot raise our families without God. So the first one, unless the Lord builds the house, we are building in vain. Look with me on verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Now, notice how this psalm begins. Unless the Lord. The emphasis here is, is on God. And actually, each of the psalms from the Song of Ascent, from Psalms 120 to 127, begins the first verse with this focus on God. This focus on what God can do. Look at Psalm 120, the first one in the Song of Ascent, how it begins. In my distress, I called to the Lord. Psalm 121, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? As Axel prayed in the pastoral prayer today. Psalm 122, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And as we woke up this morning, maybe you're trying to wake up your children. Wait, wake up. Let us go to the house of the Lord. And you looked at your spouse and, and your wife and your husband and your children and your friends. Let us go to the house of the Lord this New Year's Day. It's where we belong, here. Psalm 123. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Psalm 124. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, Psalm 125, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. Psalm 126, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. And Psalm 127, unless the Lord, unless the Lord, we see this focus of the, the psalmist and all these psalmists, they have this complete trust, faith and reliance upon the Lord regardless of the circumstances. Unless the Lord builds the house, no house will stand. 
We see, we read again in verse 1, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. So what house and what city is the psalmist talking about it here since neither the house nor the city is mentioned? Now, since this psalm is a, is a, is a psalm of Solomon, then the temple in Jerusalem and the city of Jerusalem are in view. You know, Scripture says that David had a desire in his heart to build a house for the Lord, to build a temple. But the Lord told him that since David had, too, had shed too much blood, he had too much blood on his hands, God told David that his own son Solomon would be the one who would build a house for the Lord. Listen to these words in 1 Chronicles 22. And this is God speaking to David. Behold, a son shall be born to you, David, who shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all his surrounding enemies. For his name shall be Solomon, and I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. He, that is Solomon, shall build a house for my name. He shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish his royal throne in Israel forever. So house here is a clear reference to the temple, to the temple in Jerusalem that Solomon was going to, to build. You can think of house as the physical structure, right? the building. You can even think of your own uh, home. Now, the word house in the Old Testament also signifies the household. Like when you have to answer a question, how many people are in your household? And it's talking about people. It's talking about the family. So, the interesting enough, when God makes a covenant with David in the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, I encourage you to read 2 Samuel 7. It's an incredible chapter. God promised David that God would build a house for David. It's a, there's a play there. David says he wants to build a house for the Lord. God goes to David and says, no, 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 I am going to build you a house. And what God meant was not that God was going to build David a palace. What God meant is that the Davidic dynasty, the descendants of David, would rule forever, would last forever. That, that David was going to have descendants that would reign on the throne forever. And we know who that son of David is. We know that it is the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of David, who would rule forever. But looking in response to this promise, look at what David tells God in 2 Samuel 7. Verse 28, he says, And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true. And you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. What a beautiful prayer. With your blessing, O God. What David is saying is here, and what the psalmist is saying is here, is that unless the Lord is involved in the building, in your life, in your family, in your household, in your projects, Solomon wanted to build, and David, a, 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 a temple for the Lord. It will all be in vain. In vain, and you see this word repeated here three times in the first few verses of the psalm. Now, the word vain here is not the same word that we see in the book of Ecclesiastes, where, I mean, 
where the preacher, if you hold it, that Solomon wrote this Ecclesiastes, is known for saying, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. The word for vanity in Ecclesiastes is not the one for vain here. And the word in Ecclesiastes for vanity means that whatever you're trying to accomplish in this life, whatever you, do, you desire in this life, whatever you want to attain and have it in this life, and Solomon mentions numerous, thi numerous things. He talks about knowledge. He talks about wisdom. He talks about wealth and prestige. All of these things, apart from the Lord, that were vanity means that they're not going to satisfy you. Ultimately, they're not going to satisfy you. The word there means it's going to leave you empty. It's all in vanity. It's going to leave you empty. In the end, I did this. I did that. I accomplished this and I accomplished that. And, and I still feel empty. That's what the preacher in Ecclesiastes says. But the word here, vain, doesn't mean empty. It means useless. It means pointless. And what Solomon is telling us here is that unless the Lord is involved, ultimately, it is useless. It is useless, pointless to try to, to build a house that God does not build. It is useless, pointless to try watch over a city that God does not keep. It is useless, pointless to work if God does not bless it. So he goes from speaking about building a house to watching a city. Unless the Lord watches the city, we are watching in vain. Look at me at the end of verse 1, 127. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. So this part of the verse is talking about protection, talking about safety, talking about security. And it is so easy for us to place our confidence and, and trust in the things of this world, in our own strength, in our own wisdom, in our own precautions. But ultimately, we know that our true security comes from God. Our true security comes from God. You know, one of my favorite books in the Old Testament is the book of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah, he was a Jew who was born in exile. Remember, in 586 B.C., the Jews were exiled to, to Babylon. 140 years later, you know, Nehemiah, who, who was born in exile, he actually was born in Persia. He was in the cupbearer to the king Artaxerxes in Persia. While in exile, Nehemiah feels called to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem because the walls had been destroyed by fire. He learned about the, the condition of his people, and he knows that the exiles are in, in great trouble, that the remnant in the land are in great trouble, and they are in shame, and the wall at Jerusalem is broken down, and the gates are destroyed by fire. So Nehemiah gets called to go and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. So as he gets back to Jerusalem, he encounters opposition. You can read in Nehemiah chapters 4, 5, and 6. And people are threatening Nehemiah. They're trying to discourage him from rebuilding the walls. They're actually sending even armies. The armies of Samaria come against Nehemiah and the people as they're working on the, on the wall and they're trying to discourage him from rebuilding the walls. And chapter 4 is an incredible chapter. Look at verse 9, what Nehemiah does. And we prayed to our God. We prayed to our God, but at the same time, we set a guard as a protection against them day and night. So he prayed and he set a guard as a protection. So there's a need for security. They're in danger. They have an invading army that wants to, 
to come over on Jerusalem and stop them from doing the work. The army is coming against the city. And I love the, in chapter 4, he says that they were building with one hand, and in the other hand, they had the swords ready to fight. So they're building and they have the swords. But look how chapter 4 ends in Nehemiah 4. So we labored at the work, working hard. I mean, they rebuilt the wall in 52 days. It's remarkable. But he knew, Nehemiah knew that he rebuilt it because God was in the building. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at the time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us night and may labor by day. So neither I, nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. Even though Nehemiah is taking precautions, he knew that ultimately God had called him to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls and that he was going to succeed even in the midst of fierce opposition because God was with him. Look at commentator Alan Ross, what he says. The believer recognized that true security comes from God. One can live wisely and cautiously in this world, but must acknowledge that it is ultimately God alone who protects. Therefore, people must place their trust in Him. They must pray to Him for protection, trust in Him for safety, and give Him the glory for daily preservation. Ultimately, dear friends, our very lives are in the hands of our God. Our very lives are in the hands of the Almighty, our God who, who knows the number of hairs on our head, who knows you by name, who calls you by name. Our very lives are in God's hands. Now, the psalmist, he moves from building and watching, from constructing and having security to toiling, to working. Look at the, at the third proposition in verse 2. Unless the Lord blesses the work, we are toiling in vain. It says, it is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. So Solomon is speaking about somebody rising up early and going back to late, yet they're anxious. Yet they're finding no rest. Yet their sleep is not restful. They're always worried, and there's fear and, and anxiety, and the person is eating the bread of anxious toil. You know, I, I moved here to Houston back in January of 2018, you know, specifically to attend seminary. You know, I got called to, felt called by God to pursue a Master's of Divinity at RTS Houston, and I just recently graduated after five years at RTS Houston. But at the end of 2017, you know, I had this great plan. Since I'm very smart, I have a lot of wisdom. I, I started investing, you know, some money on stocks. And by the time, you know, that I, that I got here in 2018, the beginning, I really started devoting a lot of time to investing. You know, at the same time that I was attending seminary, I was working, you know, full-time on the golf course. I was doing math tutoring and doing all that. But I started being consumed with investing. It was really, for me, talking about myself, it was a distraction for me. I mean, I cannot even say the numbers of countless hours that I spent, you know, 
doing something that the Lord did not call me to do. The Lord called me to come to seminary, to read the Word, to study the Word. But I remember from 2017, for it was like a period of like a, like a year and a half that I was consumed with wanting to, to invest. And, oh, let me invest. And you start making all kinds of excuses, right? Let me invest so I can pay my way through seminary, right? I had it all planned out. My focus was to be on seminary, not on stocks. Even there, the alliteration works. Seminary, stocks, SS. But I have to say that I spent so much time, so much energy, so much money, and on top of that, all the anxiety and the, the worry that came along with it, I was, I was literally eating the bread of anxious toil. And I have to tell you, in the end, it was all for nothing. For me, it was a waste of time. It was useless. It was pointless. It was meaningless. I did not have a quiet mind. I did not have a quiet heart. I was restless. It took me away from studying the Word. You know, David Dickinson, you know, Puritan commentator, he says that the only way to have a quiet mind and good success is to use the means that God has ordained without anxiety and committing the outcome to God. Using the means that God has ordained for us, for his people, for his church, and commit the outcome to God. You know, I, I like what Charles Spurgeon, you know, says. He says, do what you ought to do, and the Lord will take care of that which you cannot do. Do what you ought to do. Be diligent. Work hard. Do what you ought to do, and the Lord will take care of that which you cannot do. So we have talked about, you know, building and, and watching and working. So now the Lord, you know, there's a danger in here, right? There, there's a, there could be a danger and a problem, as I as just mentioned, but look at what this pastor says regarding these things. It is placing an undue confidence in our working and in our watching. The spirit rebuke is the presumption which ascribes success to our own exertions and which carefully excludes God from all consideration. A house is built, but the Lord is never thought of. Watchmen are appointed to protect the city, but no reference is made to the keeper of Israel who neither slumbers nor sleeps. An enterprise is entered upon involving important issues, but in all the calculations, there's no more place left for God than if he were asleep in the depths of the heavens and took no cognizance of human affairs. What is this but atheism? Man, I was living, I have to say, the first time when I, when I got here, I was doing my own thing. I was living as if, you know, God didn't exist, that I needed to figure out a way to provide for myself, that I knew best, that I was, had the right counsel and, and wisdom to figure things out on my own. But this psalmist is saying the promise here, the great promise here in this psalm, this great encouragement for us is that when we trust in the Lord, when we have confidence in the Lord, we receive sleep, we receive rest. This is the, the fourth proposition. Unless the Lord gives sleep, no sleep is restful. Look at the end of verse 2. For he gives to his beloved 
sleep. I mean, what a beautiful promise. What a, what a great verse. What a great truth. You know, very interesting, we're talking about Solomon being the author of, you know, of this psalm. That in, actually, in 2 Samuel, I don't have the reference there, 2 Samuel 12, 25, actually, God calls Solomon by another name. He gives Solomon the name Jedediah, which means beloved of the Lord. Beloved of the Lord. If you are in Christ, do you believe that you are the beloved of the Lord? Do you believe in his promises? Do you trust in the plans that he has for you, the plans that he has for your life, for your family, for your children, the plans that he has for his church? Do you believe in God's providence for your life, for your work life, for your family life, for all of your life? Are you finding rest in Christ? Are you finding rest in his promises? He said, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you trust that the Lord knows your needs? Do you trust that the Lord is going to provide for you? Always will provide for you. You know, commentator Alan Ross reminds us, in other words, those who place their complete trust in the Lord may rest assured. Dear friends, dear Christian, you can rest assured that He, God, knows your needs and that He will provide for your needs and that agonizing and laboring in fear and anxiety will not get any more done than what He chooses to give. The life of faith is a life that rests in Him. It may be diligent and industrious, but it will be free of the restless anxieties. Dear friends, dear Christian, rest assured that the Lord is your provider. And I finish with the last proposition, that unless the Lord builds the family, which means that we cannot raise our families without God. Now let's read verses 3 to 5. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. So now these verses here focus on, a, on another meaning of building. Here is the building of a family, that of a raising children. Now, these verses, when we read first the psalm, these verses, they appear disconnecting or disconnected from the first you know, section of the psalm. However, there are two Hebrew words here that connect these sections together. So children in the Hebrew text is the, the word banim, which literally means sons. Children, banim is connected to the word builder. Remember the word builder in the, in the first verse that says those who build it or those who labor it? The word builder there is the Hebrew word bonin. So do you hear? Bonin, 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 bonin. So it's a play on words here and that there's connecting the builder, building with children and connecting these sections together. Think about it. Why is the house being built if not for a family to live in it? Why are the watchmen protecting the city if not for families that live in the city? And families 
are God's idea from the beginning of time. Family, marriage, it's all the idea of God. James Boyce notes, families are God's idea. It was God who gave the first woman to be the first, to the first man in Eden and told them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. It follows from this that we must thank God for our families and look to him for wisdom to raise them rightly. Family was not only the most important element of a society back then, but it's the same now. Family is the backbone of a society. We cannot raise our, our families without God, and we must look to him for wisdom to, to guide our families well and, and wisely. You know, James Boyce, again, he comments, it is a vain act to build a house without God or watch over a city without depending on God to preserve it. And then it is even greater folly to try to raise a family without God. And in talking about family, this section, you know, begins by saying that children are a reward. The divine provision of children is a blessing. Look at me on verse 3. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward. So the word heritage here, this word can also be translated as children being an inheritance from the Lord. An inheritance from the Lord. So this image of heritage or inheritance, it gives the, the picture of something that is left to an heir. Something that was an allotment given to another per person as a, as a possession, as a trust. Now think in terms of inheritance. An inheritance provides someone with great opportunity, but it also brings a lot of responsibility. Children are not only a divine blessing, but they are a divine trust. God entrusts children to parents, to committed parents. And as parents, we must strive to show our children and set them a godly example. We must bring them up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. We must give them our fervent prayers. We are to be praying parents for our children, for our grandchildren. We must diligently and teaching them and teach them the word of God. All these and other responsibilities that you know come from parenting. But not only children are a heritage from the Lord and inheritance, they are a reward. Look again on verse 3. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. And the word translated reward signifies whatever benefits God bestows upon man. And this word is used throughout scriptures in many different places. And every time the word reward is used, it's saying whatever benefits God bestows upon men. Children are a blessing and not a burden. Now, it might be easy to say that to me because I, I don't have any children, but I know what it is to be a child. And I have to say that I, I gave my mom and my parents a lot of headaches and heartaches. I mean, by the time, I, mean, I pretty much broke every bone in my body. Like, I, if you look at my pictures when I was young, I always have a cast on. I broke my clavicles, I broke my, I thought it was Superman, jumped from a, from a, like a building, broke my leg. I got run over by a taxi, by a car. I, I, I had cancer when I was five years old. And I survived a year in the hospital going through chemotherapy. You know, I had a concrete roof that fell on my head. And it's just blood is gushing out. And I go into the living room and I show my mom, hey, mom, look what happened. And blush is, and I'm holding up here. And all this happened until I was 10 years old. 
I gave my mom and my parents a lot of headaches and heartaches. It's not easy. It is rough being a parent. It is rough. I was actually just coming back from a trip on the plane, and I was sitting next to this lady, and she, you know, there's a mom coming in with, a, like, a newborn baby, and she's, like, and she's, like, kind of, like, struggling. She's, like, yeah, and then this lady, she said to the other lady, said, I know, it's rough. It's rough, but look what she said. I have had two of my own, and although it was rough, it was very rewarding. Very rewarding. It's rough. Look at John Calvin, what he says. Although fathers, parents, are diligently to form their children under a system of holy discipline, yet let them remember that they will never succeed in attaining the object aimed at, save by the pure and special grace of God. Save by the pure and special grace of God. Unless the Lord, unless the Lord, you know, not only we see here that divine Provision of children is a blessing. The last thing is that divine provision of, of children is beneficial for the security of a family. Let's read again verses 4 and 5. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. And, uh, and I'll quote commentator, you know, Derek Kidner, and he says something very telling. It's not untypical of God's gifts that first there are liabilities. I was a liability to my mom. It's not untypical of God's gifts that first there are liabilities or at least responsibilities before they become obvious assets. I hope I have become an asset to my, to my mom and I try to honor her. And My father passed away when I was young, when I was 15, but I try to honor my mom and I hope that I can be an asset to my family. The greater the promise, the more likely that these sons will be a handful, I was a handful, before they're a quiverful. Trust in the Lord with your children. Trust in the Lord with your children. Raising your family, saved by the pure and special grace of God. You know, I remember last year on the men's retreat, David Strange says that we are very Calvinistic when it comes to our salvation, to our own salvation, right? That God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ before the foundations of the world. We're very Calvinistic when it comes to our salvation. What about the other spheres of our life? Building, security, raising a family, parenting. What about God's sovereignty over our children, our work life, the life of the church? You know, house, city, you know, a family. And I just finished with this last New Testament application because this is a fulfillment. We see a prophecy of fulfillment in the New Testament. Look at what it says, 1 Peter 2, 5, about us, about God's people. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We, the church, Christ is building his church as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. John 14, 1, the promises of Jesus, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, 
you may be also a house. What about a city? Revelation 21.1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. A city where nothing impure will ever enter, where thieves cannot break in and steal. And lastly, 1 John 3, 3. We see a house. We see a city. Look at the family. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Children of God. God's family. And unless the Lord, unless we are united to Christ by faith and we belong to Him, there's no other way to be part of the family of God but through Christ, through His sacrifice, through His death on the cross. It is the only way. He said it is the only way to have these promises, to be made right with God to be reconciled to God, to have these incredible promises of the scriptures, not only in this life as we try to be faithful parents and faithful workers and, and building and, and watching and providing security, knowing that the Lord will provide. Every step of the way, the Lord is going to provide because we, God's children, we are his beloved. Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks. We thank you for another year of your loving kindness and your faithfulness towards us, your people, saved by the pure grace of God. Everything we have is by grace. You are a gracious God. We thank you for another year of your abundant provision. We thank you for another year that we can say that up until today, you have been faithful to us, to your people, to your children. And we give you thanks for the promises of the gospel. We give you thanks that you're building a house for us, Jesus, that we have the hope of eternal life and see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.